welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you back. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor currently serving a church here in the greater Portland area in the Pacific Northwest. And I've done other things, uh, like I've been a professor of philosophy. I've been a real estate investor. I've been a home contractor, home improvement contractor. Anyway, enough about me. Uh, I'm just happy to be here on the show with my friends. And uh, our friends, and I say our because I'm assuming they're your friends too, (laughs) are Tom Price and Glenn Sunshine. So why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Uh, Tom, why don't we start with you? I'm Tom Price. Uh, I teach systematic theology and Christian ethics, um, but I've also taught uh, many other things, philosophy philosophy being one of them. And uh, and yeah, I'm glad to have a, a wide variety of friends and new friends ever increasing from our audience. I don't know how many times uh, during the week we get notes, messages, uh, new friends and everything else. And uh, that's one of the beautiful things, I think, being a part of this. Um, is to just see how wide all the way in New Zealand and Australia and maybe Tom, even Tom Price, Australia. That's right. Tom Price <laughs> Mountain. Um, we may even have uh, uh, friends. So that's that's, that's a right. good thing for me. <laughs> yeah, if we if we if we hadn't, uh, you know, gotten the show going, we'd never learn. We never would have learned about Tom Price. Australia. Tom Price Mountain. You know, maybe we need to do a show <laughs> in Tom Price Mountain. <laughs> yeah, that, that'd be that'd be amazing. That'd be a lot yeah. of fun. <laughs> Take a week to get there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Glenn, how about you? Glenn Sunshine. I am a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Uh, I run a ministry called Every Square Inch Ministries, and I just finished grading my last set of papers and exams for my job at Central Connecticut State University, which is ending shortly, uh, after which I will be technically a professor emeritus. All right. Congratulations. Yeah, good stuff. And, you, and, you, and you've begun another book. Yeah, I've got a book contract, another book contract with Canon Press, um, working title, Christians Who Changed Their World. It's a sh- series of short biographies of people, most of whom you've never heard of, who, because of their Christian faith, had a big impact in a lot of areas. I mean, so I'm going to be doing uh, mathematicians and scientists and artists oh, and diplomats and and so on. Well, that's great stuff. Good stuff. Anyway, why don't we jump into the subject of the day? And it's a mystery. The <laughs> subject of the day is a mystery because I want to talk about mystery. Now, uh, I actually want to talk about mystery, and I also want to talk about clearing up mysteries. But let's talk about mystery and what it is, or maybe what it's become. So today, when it's someone, when someone says it's a mystery, you know, you might say, uh, well, uh, are we talking about Sherlock Holmes and some, you know, detective fiction uh, or a, a television show that specializes in clearing up crimes, you know, because, I mean, who committed the crime is a mystery. Uh, and I think, what we're saying when we when we're talking about mystery today, we're talking about uh, a matter that can be solved, uh, a question that can be answered. Who killed, you know, Mister Johnson? You know, that's the mystery. And Sherlock Holmes comes in, or whoever your favorite, you know, detective <laughs> is, comes in and through through sort of piecing together bits of information and and you know clues is able to discern, uh, identify the, the criminal. But we could talk about mysteries in terms of scientific mysteries. You know, like, uh, you know, there are mysteries that, that are no longer mis- as mysterious as they once were, things that we now understand better because we've done some, you know, some of the work uh, in order to discover what, you know, is really going on. So like when we think about DNA, we think about, you know, the, how, how people come to possess the characteristics or the traits, physical traits, or even maybe um, their talents and and so forth. We could say, well, uh, it's because of DNA. It's because of the kind of the inner code that's at work in our bodies that someone looks the way he does or she does or what have you. And for the longest time, we didn't know the answer really to the question, um, you know, why are people the way they are in terms of appearance and ability and so forth. And now because we have insight into 
this this marvelous thing called DNA, we we could say that's the answer. It's it's in part at least uh, due to DNA, their 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 genes. Um, but for as I noted, most of human history, people just had to guess um, as to why things are the way they are when it comes to biology and, and even psychology. So there's, you know, mystery in that sense. A mystery for us today is a matter that we don't have an answer to, but potentially could answer if we had the data, if we had the insight, if we conducted the research, uh, we could sort of clear things up and solve the mystery. So that, I think that's the thing to note. I think today when we talk about mysteries, mysteries we're talking about matters that can be made unmysterious. <laughs> There's no mystery there. We know the answer, that kind of thing. It's interesting just uh, before you move into the next step is that, you know, we do have this kind of, as humans, fallen and and redeemed, um, this, this human kind of disposition towards, you know, peeling back the veil and solving these puzzles. And I think it's part of our createdness um, to, to discover truth, to be oriented to it, even in our fallenness when we suppress it, distort it. We still have this inclination towards um, wanting to to kind of pull back the mysterious to figure out, you know, what's what's behind things. Um, one could argue, I'm not going to argue that here, but one could argue the the temptation um, in the garden was bound up with this kind of curiosity, which becomes a vice when mm. that is isn't held in check, right? Right, right. Yeah, curiosity killed the cat, as they yeah. say. <laughs> Or killed Adam and Eve. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the rest of us. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. One of one of the ways that the word mystery was defined in the ancient world, I mean, there are a lot of different implications to it. Uh, but one of them that actually has a lot of connection to our current way of using it is something that was hidden that is now revealed. So if you think about a mystery story, who done it, how they done it, why they done it. All of those kinds of things are hidden, right. but the detective, by going through whatever the process is, ends up revealing them. Right, um, right. So, uh, or a, science, it's, it's the same thing. There are things about the scientific world that we don't understand that are hidden from us, and the scientist who works it out reveals it, reveals what's going on. Right. It's an apocalypse, which is an unveiling. You know, you know. When we think about the word, you know, when we think about apocalypse. An apocalypse, uh, we usually think about it in a bad way. We think about, you know, mm. wow, the end of the world, you know, you know, there's a meteor her, you know, coming mm. to strike the earth. It's, it's an apocalyptic event. Yeah. Well, uh, originally, as you note, Glenn, that would have been an uh, in, in, in appropriate way of sort of thinking about it. Uh, mm. It's, you know, a, you know, a, rev a revelation is an apocalypse. It's an unveiling. That's what literally an apocalypse is. And, right. and you sort and, of and have a revelation. Mm -hmm. And you have in Revelation, I mean, you, you, we have a waiting period um, that it isn't until Christ, you know, unrolls the scrolls to unveil the meaning of history. So you have this right. continuous mystery of, of really what's at the heart of things um, until that unveiling. But then, just to, to add complexity to the topic, um, in Christianity, you have mysteries revealed, but mysteries revealed that remain mysteries, um, Trinity and incarnation, I think, are, are, are two, that what we get in Christ is not a clearing away of the mystery, but an actually compounding of the mystery, um, yeah. and that, that it, it really takes conversion, sanctification, and, and readiness for the beatific vision, if you will, to, to, to see Christ face to face before we start to get close enough to where um, we can see face to face. Yeah, I I, I want to go there. I want to spend some time there. But you had something you wanted to say, Glenn. I, I don't want to cut you off. Oh, oh yes. well, um, actually, Tom kind of covered a lot of it. The thing I would <laughs> like to point out, the thing I'd like Sorry to point out, that. though, is that in, in Greek, this is going to one of my favorite topics, um, in Greek, uh, the word mysterion is translated into Latin as sacramentum. Yeah, right. sacraments right. are mysteries. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, and now we're definitely getting to where I, where I want to go. Uh, I, I read something here recently in the Imaginative Conservative, which is, by the way, a great publication. Uh, it's only online, um, uh, 
And if you've never visited the Imaginative Conservative, look it up. Um, it's a great uh, resource, and there are people who are contributing to it all the time. And there was a, an article that was published last week at the Imaginative Conservative uh, entitled, Can We Live Without Enchantment? And it was by uh, Wilfred McClay and an old friend of mine, Don Yerksa. Hmm. Uh, and they're getting into this very distinction that we were just talking about. Uh, when they're addressing the subject of enchantment, and that's a subject that we've talked about a lot, you know, in, the, in our podcast, uh, when they're addressing the subject of enchantment, what they're getting at is that uh, there's a sense in which um, the first way I described mystery has supplanted the second way we were talking about mystery. So we've, we've gone from living in a world uh, in which there are things hidden and, and including uh, included in those things that are hidden are not simply, uh, you know, questions that have yet to be answered or things that have yet to be unveiled, but things that are sort of abiding presences uh, in things. Those things can be the meaning of things, you know, in other words, kind of like, uh, what's the meaning of being, uh, you know, a man or what's the meaning of uh, being a woman? In a certain sense, there's something mysterious with regard to being uh, a man or a woman. Uh, what, what I mean by that is that there's a there's a there's kind of a, an inner reality to being a, either a man or a woman that uh, is sort of hidden in the very, you know, uh, sexuality of men and women there's in other words there's more to it than merely the biology or how the machinery works yeah there's there's, there's, there's essences there that we we can't fully fathom right now with regard to you know the new way or newer way of seeing the world uh you know there's very little room in terms of people's ability to think and and and, and understand the world for that uh, being a man or being a woman is simply something that can be reduced to, well, you know, anatomy or, yeah. you know, reduced to um, biology. And, 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 and when we think about anatomy or biology in this sense, it's entirely a material phenomenon. It's, a, it's, a, it's just simply a matter of fact uh, and not something that is intrinsically meaningful. Um, now, mystery can also uh, speak to even more profound things than that. And we were talking about sacraments, for example, how the sacraments um, are actually um, vehicles for uh, communicating grace to us. And that grace is uh, what is contained and it is the mystery Right. It's this thing, you know, so just this just this past Sunday, um, we take communion uh, at my church every Sunday. And um, as I was addressing the subject of things hidden and things revealed, I noted with my 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 congregation that when the Lord walked among us, when he was, you know, embodied and ministering to us uh, in this world, he's still embodied. But you know what I'm getting at? Yeah. There were people who missed it. There were people who looked at the surface and couldn't see what was beneath the surface. There was a mystery that we call the incarnation. God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And in the same, you, know, you could say in the same way, every time there is a, you know, celebration of the Lord's Supper, there's something going on beneath the surface. You know, on the surface, you just have bread and wine. Right. But there's more going on than that. There's a spiritual presence. There's a real presence uh, that we as Christians perceive by faith. Now, it's not as though we could sort of take apart the bread, you know, or, or analyze the wine under a microscope and say, ah, there's God. <laughs> right. But but we by faith can perceive this. We can see this. this and it's not just in our heads. It's a reality. Yeah. that exists outside of our heads and is in the world itself. This is, this is another way of referring to or talking about enchantment. 
And it's that association with, you know, the Logos that is intrinsic to creation and redemption. Christ, of course, the second person, the eternal Logos, is that, um, and this is, I, I think, one of the, I mean, I think, I think, and I'm just going to, you know, I'll, I'll speak as somebody who spent a lot of time with this stuff. I think still, as Christians, thousands of years after Christ have not really fully fathomed the profundity of the Logos and the, 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 the inherent relation to creation and redemption um, going on there. And I think all of our attempts to do it are, remain mysterious um, because, just because of that. There is a profound mystery there that doesn't let our um, it lets us get some of the things right, of course, what scripture kind of sets the stage for and we kind of, you know, align ourselves with. But to be able to capture that profundity, um, and you, you'll talk a little later about the scripture, I mean, you know, describing the event can't kind of unpack that one. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, just think about the term that we use, communion. Yeah. Um, what does that mean? Uh, is it? Um, just happening? Is it just sort of like a a mental model or is there a genuine communion occurring between God and man and man and man? In other words, you know, yeah. there's, a, there's a vertical yeah. and there's a horizontal. We're, when we, when we celebrate communion, we're not just um, talking about something that occurred in the past. We're talking about something that we're experiencing in the present there's something and we're, we're talking happening. about. I mean, I think Glenn had said this other times, the heartbeat of all reality. I mean, I think that that's really what you're getting at. Um, mm -hmm. The heart of creation brought into its uh, most concrete place of exemplification in its relationship to Christ's sacrifice for us and life givingness. Right. And so and so what you have poured out in this um, bread and wine, if you will. Um, is the very presence of the life of God. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, and this doesn't preclude the need for faith. In fact, it requires faith yes, in order right. to see it. So. Uh, and that's what, that's what, that's what participation in it, in the spirit is all about. I mean, it's the Holy Spirit being, being the vehicle um, that which bring, you know, elevates us, if you will. I mean, we talk about elevation of the host. We're talking about elevation of us to be able oh, yeah. to discern, discern the body. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, and Calvin, you know, addressed this whole matter. Uh, mysteriously, we are elevated into heavenly places in worship. Mm -hmm. You know, you can look around the room and you can say, no, we're right here in Vancouver, Washington, <laughs> yeah. or wherever you happen to be. But, but in another sense, mysteriously, you have been elevated into into the heavenlies. This yes. is this is New Testament language. This is not a bunch of uh, yeah. you know sort of uh, mystics playing mind games on yeah. people. This is New Testament yeah. talk. And, yeah. and on that point, I think this is the right kind of mysticism. I mean, I you know I know people have an allergy to that in some cases because they're thinking subjectivity and and uh, uh, you know. Um, something locked within the human being. This is the exact opposite, um, you know, and I'm not even talking about Paul being caught up to the third heavens, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm talking about the way in which we are, I mean, Colossians, you are to be heavenly minded, set yourself on Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father. This is who you are. This is a mystery. Yeah. We, if you want to get down to, to it, I think another thing that is an unvisited topic within, within much theology is the fact that we are a mystery, and that mystery is hidden in Christ. Mm -hmm. Who we are, you don't know who you are until he appears, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah you, you don't even know yourself. Yeah. You think you're you think you're an authority on yourself. <laughs> yes. You don't even know yourself. You think you know what you need. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, in Calvin actually cites the traditional liturgy um, where there's a phrase in Latin, sursum corda, lift up your hearts. Yeah. And he says, you know, this is what, this is literally what is going on um, mm -hmm. in communion. You are lifting up your hearts to the Lord, to where he is seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places. And it is in that spot that you actually do participate or have fellowship with Christ's body and blood. Yeah, now I, I I suspect that one of the reasons why we don't think uh, in this way has to do not simply with the fact that 
we live in a modern world where people can't see the you know, the mystery at the you know, that's at work in at the heart of things. I think that a lot of times uh, people believe that um, that in order for something significant to to occur spiritually in their lives, there has to be a kind of emotional or sort of uh, uh, sort of uh, sort of profound sort of a sense of what's occurring before it can actually be the case. So I, I guess one way to talk about it is this. So uh, if a person uh, finds himself in a, in an automobile that is about to smash into a wall, but his eyes are closed uh, he won't feel fear, <laughs> right? <laughs> but he will die. <laughs> in other words, in other words, there's 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 an objective reality that's occurring, whether or not the person sees it or not, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but the reality precedes the emotion. I think that many times in evangelicalism, we think that the emotion precedes the reality. Mm-hmm. That's why we try to get people stirred up in these, uh, you know, worship times you know what what are we what are we doing well we're trying to sort of work people up into an emotional frenzy yeah so, so soften the the feels you know that's right yeah we're, <laughs> we're getting everybody worked up by singing uh some praise chorus for the 50th time you know so <laughs> you know they're all getting they're getting worked up into this sort of emotional frenzy and then then you have communion with god whereas uh i think that the reality of communion of god is at work in, in the sacraments, whether you see it or not, it's like hitting the wall. Now there are those moments where your eyes open, you say, wow, I'm about to hit the wall. And then you're like, you know, you're emotionally uh, sort of impacted by this, but it doesn't mean that you right weren't. Right before the wall impacts you. Yeah. That's right. That's right. But that doesn't mean that you weren't in communion with God. Yeah before you had the emotional experience. You were in communion with God, whether you had the emotional experience or not. Now, it's a marvelous thing. I'm all for people having an, a, a marvelous emotional experience. I'm not a, I'm not a party pooper. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, this actually gets into, this is where I'm going to get in real trouble somewhere. <laughs> um, Go this, ahead, Glenn. This also gets into the whole thing about you have to have a born-again experience. You know, you've got you've to, you know, know the point at which, you know, you, you repented and you, well, actually, they don't often talk about repentance, at which point, the point at which you believed, you know, that you accepted Christ, that, that, that there's this moment where you say the words. In, in, this, in, the, south, in the South, they say. the way it works. In the, in the South, they have an epistemology that says, you know that you know that you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And it happened at a particular time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and, and and for some people that may be the case, but it's it's not an obligatory thing, and and the problem is that when you focus so much on the experience, what happens when you no longer feel it? Yeah, I don't know how many evangelicals that I've talked to who have accepted Christ multiple times because they weren't sure they did it right the first time. That's right, that's right. Because it's, 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 right. Romant- because, it's romanticism because, wrapped in evangelical clothing. I mean, let, right. let's just be honest. I, I mean, that's that's sort of what it's become. Now, I understand the fact that faith is living, and mm-hmm. that it, it it should be such that um, the presence of God um, becomes something we're communing with. I mean, I get that. Um, but to mark that with certain kinds of experiences um, as if they need to be all emotional rather than contemplative or 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 per- just participatory um, is, is really um, unbiblical. I mean, um, I mean, scripturally, scripturally, it doesn't doesn't sit here and give it doesn't take the exceptional and make that the norm. Right. Yeah, that's that's this actually becomes a problem, particularly for covenant children. Yeah. I'm referring, of course, to children who grow up in homes that are, yeah. you know, led by believers. Yeah. So, so they end up in it with this sort of weird testimony envy. Have you have you ever seen this? Yeah. Yeah. 
testimony yeah. envy. So, like, you know, I, I've known kids uh, who've grown up in really stable homes who knew they were loved by their parents yeah. their entire lives, who were taught when they could just begin to walk and speak that Jesus loved them and that Jesus died for them and that they they should feel gratitude uh, for that and should be devoted to the Lord. I've, I've seen these, these, these young people um, grow up believing that, that their, their Christian faith is not as genuine as the faith of the drug addict who was converted dramatically. So yes. you, you, you know how this goes. So yeah. Teen Challenge comes to your church to raise money. <laughs> yeah, so Teen yeah, Challenge yeah. comes to the church to raise money. And, and, and what do they do? They, they bring up all these guys who like were living in a box under a yeah. bridge and were, you know, murderers and drug addicts and rapists. And they give their <laughs> testimonies. And everybody is like so taken by these testimonies yeah. that you have testimony envy. So, yeah. so, so if you really want to, if you really want to be a believer, you need to go out and like live for the world yeah. for a while. Yeah. <laughs> so yet this weird sort of, anyway, you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, I think you, you, you see that. I mean, rather than be in a moment to just praise God for being able to reach into the uttermost parts of depravity and actually transform people. Um, you know, the, the catechism needs to be such that we also recognize the beautiful gift of providential ordering so that God prevents people from, and children of people, um, from having to go into that depravity to need to be converted. I mean, yeah. what do you want for your kids? Do you really <laughs> want your kids to become drug addicts and live under a bridge? <laughs> That's right. Before they become genuinely converted? That's or do you want kids to grow up in homes where yeah. they've, from the time that they are first self-conscious, yeah. they know that God loves them and that they uh, are called to live uh, in, you know, obedient and faithful response to his word and enjoy God from the start. Yeah. That's what you well, want. Well, that's, and, and I think that's, that's the, the combination grace here. I mean, what we have in the church is the promise tied to covenant fidelity. And the bringing up of children, you bring them up into the way they shall go. When they are old, they won't depart from it. And yet the profundity that the gospel goes into the uttermost parts of the world and can bring even the most heinous sinner into that family. And so I think both can be held there without having to create a, uh, you know, a ill, you know, kind of ill-conceived hierarchy that, right. that says only the exceptional um, are you know and, and, and you know I get you know I want to go back to history a bit and I don't want to just kind of be you know um, kind of read it read it through a certain lens but I, I mean you you often see that in Christendom where almost everyone was nominally Christian you had to come up with examples of those that were really Christian right <laughs> and so you have holiness movements arise temperance movements right. arise and then holiness you know that this group aren't the kind of lethargic spiritually, you know, lax, you know, um, Oxford movement kind of folk. <laughs> then you got well, the, the John Wesley's, you know. The <laughs> right. you know and w what is the Latin word for holy? Yeah. Sanctus, which comes into English as saint. Yeah, yeah. So even in the Catholic world, you've got your saints. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but 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 you know here here's an, sort of an interesting thing. I I don't think most people realize that one of the divides, actually probably the main divide that exists between the Protestants and the Protestant reformers, 16th century Protestant reformers and American evangelicals is this emphasis on conversion. Yeah. That really seems to enter the picture if I you know as near as I can tell, that emphasis on this moment of conversion seems to show up primarily in the Puritans. Hmm. And I think that's where it passes into evangelicalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Well, I want to step back a minute and think a little more about this matter uh, of mystery. So we have this distinction between uh, understandings. We've got the Sherlock Holmes understanding of mystery and then St. Paul, <laughs> and it's an, it's an understanding of mystery. So mysterion, you know, as it was understood in the first century versus mystery as it's understood in the 19th and the 20th and the 21st centuries. So th this is, this is, this is uh, a distinction that's worthwhile keeping in mind. And this is what I think 
uh, you know, the authors of that, that article I was referring to, can we live without enchantment? That's what they were getting at. They, what made that a fascinating article was that whenever you come across an article with a title like that, you think that they're going to go to fairy tales or they're going to go to, um, you know, the inklings or something like that, but they didn't, they went to mystery and the fact that there are certain things that we can know scientifically where we clear up mysteries and puzzles are solved and there are things that we could never clear up because that's not sort of really what you do with these mysteries. These are, these are realities that exist that sort of, and are unable to be sort of, sort of, uh, solved or, uh, sort of dismissed through rational inquiry. Now, um, with this, with this matter of kind of, you know, having this kind of in the background, I want to take a, I want to take kind of a, uh, a turn and move in a different direction, but I, it, but it does relate. I'm reading right now, Carl Truman's new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. So here it is for those of you out there in YouTube land. Or, yep, Glenn's got it right there. Ah, Great. I have Great. it on ebook. So. <laughs> I can't show that. I can't show it. It That's remains right. a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to take it in faith that you've got That's it right, on your I have it. <laughs> anyway, it, it's a it's a it's a useful treatment. And um, a couple of things about it that I'd like to say before I get to what I want to talk about. One is that uh, Carl has, has, has performed a service uh, by writing this book. <clears throat> and, and the service he's performed is this. He's taken things that many intellectual conservatives have known for about 30 years and popularized it. That's really what's going on here. Now, what, what Andy, I, Andy's kind of taken a step away from the the classical oppositional reformed response to these and actually, you know, address the ideas. Yeah, I think he's done a great job of that, Tom. Yeah. I agree with yeah. that. Yeah. And but, I would add that he gives us yet another reason to go back in time and shoot Rousseau. That's right. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. That's right. So so Carl's done a great service. But but I want people to know that what Carl has done is he's popularized something. This, this, none of the, none of the, Carl is, and I'm, I'm sure that Carl would admit this. He's not being original here. He's not like mm-hmm. demonstrating I have great insight into the, into the sort of the, the course of modernity here. And here I am coming down from the mountain and presenting to you the truth. <laughs> now, if, if you've done, if you've been, if you've been literate as a social conservative in the world of ideas for the last 30 years, there's nothing new that Carl is, is, has introduced. Well, but, and he, 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 you know, he says basically a lot of what he's doing is out of reef. Yep. You know, and, yep. and he keeps citing Reef and um, and a few other people. I mean, he's he's yeah. constantly pointing to other people as the source of his ideas. So he's not, you know, he's right. not making claims otherwise. Yeah, and even Reef, you know, he's just essentially Reef or McIntyre or Charles McIntyre, Taylor. Taylor. These, these are people who are who are trying to uh, help people understand what happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there are so, people that read Augustine and Aquinas, which I've been telling our audience to keep doing. But anyway, we need you know. Anyway, right. we'll, we'll go right. the long game. <laughs> right. So, so I, I, I give I give uh, Carl a lot of credit uh, for performing a great service. Now, there are certain things that Carl is not trying to do. So he's not trying to refute everything yeah. that you know modernity stands for. He's not trying to. He's he's essentially saying this is what happened. But that's my point. I think that there is a profoundly uh, disenchanting power to simply saying this is what happened. And I think that the that for many people, because they don't know what happened, they're they're at the mercy of the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're at the mercy of these forces, these intellectual forces that are sort of blowing through our culture and blowing it away. Yeah. Uh, 
and they don't know how to respond because they don't know what happened. And and the the interesting thing is, this is the hardest thing. I mean, Glenn has written a book on it. The the interesting thing is, is that this stuff, it is, it's, it's not even, I mean, the stuff people are being blown away with is stuff that really just can't test the water. I mean, it's, it's something that a child after they studied critical thinking a few generations ago would have been able to get, but now it, it's, it's mesmerized the, the hierarchy of leadership in the Western yeah. world. Yeah. You know, the whole woke phenomenon to me is uh, demonst- it demonstrates that people just don't have a good education. Yeah. And, and how education has been severed from spiritual formation. I mean, I think, yeah, I think well, you get both. Let, let, let's call a spade a spade, how education has turned into indoctrination. Yeah, yeah. Right. And what Carl has done for us is, is he's demystified. And I mean this in the good way. You know, he's, he's, he's pulled back the veil. Yeah. And said, you know, what's really going on here is not yeah. what you think is going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there, there are forces here that at, at, there are forces here at play that most people don't recognize and yeah he, he's definitely brought our attention to those forces yeah. and, and he brought it in a very concise way i mean we've talked about it on our show from a different angles but but he's been able to bring it to a i think a con, you know a concision that is very helpful yeah yeah you know, one of the things that that's interesting, and I, know, I think I know some of the directions you want to go, Chris, so I'm going to preempt you. Um, <laughs> the, the issue of description, it, describing what happened. Science has always, well, in the modern world, has made the mistake of confusing description with explanation. That's right. So science describes what happens, but science never really answers the question, why? We think that when we know how something happens, we know why it happens. And that's that's the nature of the way science is presented. And I think that carries over in how we read things like Truman, where we read the description of what happens. It tells us sort of how it happened, but it never really gets to the why. And, that's and, and that it never really addresses the, the the other thing, you know, that uh, all us kind of natural law folk who are scandalous, <laughs> scandalous in much of the world <laughs> um, do. But uh, the ought question, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that that's the other thing. I mean, I, I know Truman will kind of get to that, but the ought, um, mm-hmm. the fact that you described that something is and, uh, you know, even if you could unpack why it is. You haven't unpacked fully, uh, should it be, and what are the reasons for it? Yeah, yeah, I think that, that, that those are great insights. I think the thing, though, that I'm, I'm sort of intrigued by is this, uh, this demystification of the zeitgeist. So I want to kind of zero in on that. So what is the zeitgeist? Well, it's the spirit of the age. So the zeitgeist is the spirit of the age. And, you know, we have lots of... Uh, you know, attention given to this in the New Testament uh, when the the term the world mm-hmm. is is used. Now, when we think about the world, you know, the word that's often translated uh, as world in the New Testament is the word cosmos, as we've talked about that before. But there are two worlds here. Uh, there's the world that God has made, the order that God has made, and then there's the world that we've made of it. You know, there's the world that the the order or disorder that we have created. And what Carl has done is he's taken uh, the world that we've made, what we've made of the world, and he's opened it up. He's he's demystified it because it only really has power, I believe, uh, insofar as you don't get it. You don't see what's going on. It's, It's like a magician. Like a magician forms his tricks or her tricks uh, deceptively, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's sleight of hand. You know, there's, you're told that one thing is happening or you believe that one thing is happening when in fact something else is really going on. So, you know, you may think that the magician has chopped off his assistant's head. <laughs> <laughs> it sure looks like that. <laughs> but he really <laughs> chopped off his foot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or, 
or not chopped off anything. Anything, (laughs) See, that's the thing. So, so what's happening, you know, when you think about like trends in theology or trends in philosophy or trends in thought, there is this idea that, okay, Rousseau has chopped off God's head, right? Or chopped off the, the head of tradition or chopped off the head of authority or whatever. When in fact, there's just been a sort of delusion that's occurred that leads you to believe a certain thing is true when it's not. Um, that's, I think, really... A, you know, the case with a good deal of modernity. Modernity, you know, we, when we think about, we think about uh, the Enlightenment and the, you know, philosophers of the Enlightenment, critique was their big thing, right? You know, so they subject everything to critique. But the critiquers don't get critiqued at least not initially, maybe in later generation critiques, but, but there's a sort of ongoing sleight of hand that that's occurring. And I think that, that, a, that a book like this, Carl's book, is a book that sort of demystifies the magicians. It says, okay, this is what's really what's been going on. And this is why it doesn't work. This is why uh, you shouldn't take it to heart. And I think what it what, what occurs when it, when this is done well is a not just simply a demystification but a disillusionment. I think that disillusion is a good word. If you're a, if you're suffering from an illusion, you need to be dissed. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm getting at. And in the modern world, we have illusions that people believe to be true. And when a person like Carl in this book just describes how the illusion was performed, he's performed a great service. He's demystified uh, the illusionary process and shown it to be simply not what you thought. Now, we as Christians know that there is a genuine mystery. And that's why I started with this distinction between mystery and mystery, you know, the modern understanding and the earlier understanding. There really is a mystery. And that's what you really want to get to. You want to re-enchant the world or, or not re-enchant. As you've noted before, Glenn, it's not that the world has been disenchanted. It's just that we miss the enchantment. <laughs> um, getting back to that, we need to get back to that and stop living with illusions. You know, and, now, and, and we could go into some detail as to, you know, how the modern world has come to believe illusions are real. And Carl shows us why they're not, but but I'm just I'm I'm more interested in sort of this larger, larger phenomenon of of uh, demystification in a good sense. Anyway, I've said my piece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the and and this is something that I think we're called to do pretty consistently through the New Testament is see through the lies that the world presents to us. Yeah. Um, and uh, we we frankly do a service, I think, to the world by disillusioning them to re-enchant them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, if we can draw the distinction between enchantment and illusion here, right? And, and I've often thought that you know the Enlightenment tried to mimic, I think, the Reformation in many ways of of trying to um, you know um, pull back the wool over delusion, if you will, or idols, and, and then kind of co- try to come up with a kind of purified certain knowledge. I mean, I think it tried to do it without revelation. That was its problem um, b- besides other problems. But I mean, you you have this, this kind of, I mean, I think this is what you continuously happen. I mean, I, you look at Derrida and figures like that. I mean, you, you see what they're trying to do is kind of deconstruct. They're trying to get behind all the appearances for, for the kind of, the heart of things, but for them, the heart of things is 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 a void. There's no presence. There is no ontology. So it's a it's like mystical in the in the bad sense of the word. That, but but it's it's a complete um, it's a it's it's completely uh, com, you know driven by a commitment to something that has no no real way of presenting itself as true or anything else. And so it's just okay. Run with this. 
Um, Christianity was trying to say that, that, you know, we don't need to live in that kind of delusion. What we have is an eternal Logos who's manifest in the whole of creation, hidden because of our sinfulness and finitude. We need to be, to, to be brought into um, relation to the eternal Logos in order to fathom it in our own place in it and our own redemption from, you know, from it. And so, you know, Christianity, of course, with the gospel is just that. I mean, the gospel is this, this unveiling that doesn't get rid of the mystery, but brings us actually up into it. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why this, that when we bring the knowledge of the gospel into the world, um, on the level of sinfulness, yes, there's a, there's a kind of rejection of it, but there's also the fact that it is a mystery. It comes cloaked in, 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 in the sacramental form. And so the, 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 you know, I think even this was a big thing, I think, that Christianity wrestled with in the Hellenic world when it first went into a place where the material world was considered inferior. And here it's talking about incarnation, resurrection, and sacrament. <laughs> And yep. yet it was able to it was able to connect in the Hellenic world with the fact that the Hellenic world had something in it that it hadn't completely lost. And that that's that being creaturely being is 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 good, true, and beautiful when it is oriented towards the true, the the transcendent, right? And so Christianity was able to say, you know what, there's something there that is it's completely congruent with what we're saying. And so there is a place in which we can communicate this mystery, but we're going to have to do some um, refining work. We're going to have to do some renewing work on your on your worldview to show you why the goodness of truth, beauty, and goodness find their ground in, in, in one who is not just eternal logos, but personal and has come into your presence in the material world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The personal logos. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to go back to Derrida for a moment. Hmm. who was court, sort of at the beginning of, of, of what you just said there. Mm -hmm. um, because, because Derrida provides an interesting secular sort of counterpoint to all of this. Uh, the whole point of deconstruction is that Derrida believed that, that language encoded power structures. Right. Um, and the, the point of deconstruction was to challenge the power structures that were encoded in texts, text being pretty much anything, not just what we think of as texts, but texts could be just about any, any kind of communication in the world. So the point was to deconstruct the power structures in it, in a sense, to try to subvert it. Now, Derrida was not at a point where he was, um, you know, revolutionary or whatever. This was at a point where... Um, Postmodernism really saw a lot of this stuff as a game or as playing. And it's actually the terminology that they would use was play. Um, yeah. But um, what they were trying to do was to subvert the world system to maybe ideally replace it with another that was no more objective than the old one was, but that they just preferred. Yeah. The difference between Derrida, Derrida is an interesting case here because Christians want to do the same thing in a sense. We want to subvert the system as it, ex as it exists now, the, the power structures and things like that in society, but to replace it not with one of our preference, but with reality, with right. one that is rooted in the eternal, the good, the true, and the beautiful, and therefore in God. Yeah, getting at that is the trick. Um, how do you how do you apprehend that uh, the good the true and the beautiful as you know as as it is in God? One of the things that Carl does in his book uh, the Triumph uh, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self is he uh, gets into uh, Alistair McIntyre a bit and McIntyre's um, sort of departure from Marxism and his embrace of Thomism. Yeah, and uh, one of the things I remember when I was at Harvard, I remember. Uh, one of my professors said, and he was quoting, I think, McIntyre. Um, yeah. he, he said, it's, it's Nietzsche or, or Aristotle. Yes, yeah, that, that is from, that's from, uh, I think, his book on the virtues. It's Nietzsche yeah. or Aristotle, yeah. which yeah. I think Dave Bentley Hart is Christ, Christ or nihil. But, but I get, you know, it's the same right. kind of polarity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So now, of course, with Nietzsche, you're talking about creation of value. 
you know, you're yeah. talking about uh, just sort of imposing your values upon the world. Yeah. Then you get down to the very practical problem of, okay, who's, who's in charge and gets to do that. And cause you know, we are social creatures and, and there has to be uh, some kind of communal effort yeah. uh, in order to make that work. Um, which gets you in again to sort of, you know, Derrida and all those guys. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> right. So you, you, you really haven't made any kind of uh, advance. Uh, then the thing with Aristotle is, you know, he's taught, we talk about goals we talk about purposes, what things are made for and how, how that can be a, 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 a process that not just, or a way of thinking that not just simply uh, deals with, um, you know, projects, uh, but actually with persons, you know, that's what, right. What are and, we and, made for? You know, true natures. I mean, Aristotle's up to, um, like him or not, depending where you are on the reform sc- uh, spectrum, um, <laughs> like him or not, he's dealing with essences and, and the unpacking of created essences. So the fact that you, you're created a human being, um, is not merely the fact that you were created a human being, but you, end up being a human being. And so uh, the end um, for which your nature unfolds, it moves towards, it unpacks, um, is in this, I mean, in many ways, I mean, the early church saw saw a lot of uh, continuity here that the eschatology and teleology, the fact that we have natures that are oriented towards fulfillment and eschatology in Christ is the is the fulfillment of that it, it is kind of what what's going on you know in in someone like uh, McIntyre's mind? Yeah, so we have uh, creation and new creation. Yes, you know, and I think those are good ways for you know p- people who really take biblical language yeah uh, seriously to sort of hold on to this. Yeah. I think uh, you know uh, the way though you can kind of go from sort of a commonsensical sort of way of thinking to sort of this more profound metaphysical way of thinking is just by kind of a very intuitive step. So, you know, in uh, Carl's book, he, 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 he's talking about power and he's talking about the way people experience it. Uh, and he uses an illustration from the playground. He says, you know, in a playground, if there's a game, you know, let's, let's say you're playing kickball or baseball or whatever, and it's pickup. So the two most sort of uh, important people, you know, in the playground pick the teams, right? And then, you know, each person who is chosen comes to evaluate himself or herself based on how early they were picked in the picking process, right? <laughs> now, the way, the way Carl constructs this uh, process leads you to believe, or, or it could lead you to believe, that's a better way to put it, that this is arbitrary, that this is just, you know, just has no basis in any kind of larger project that <laughs> is just simply, you know, uh, arbitrary, you are more important than you or whatever. Mm-hmm. But of course, if you want to win the game, right, you know that there is something more. <laughs> and that is that is ability. <laughs> so some kids really are faster than other kids. Some kids really are stronger than other kids. Some kids are more coordinated than other kids. Some kids have played the game before. So and then there's me. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, the, you see, that's the thing is that there's a telos, there's a purpose, there's a goal. Winning the game. If you want to win the game, everything else kind of comes into place or gets finds its place in the ordering of things. And it's not just simply uh, an arbitrary act of saying, okay, you're better than you. It's actually, this person has the virtue to help us more than this person, has more virtue to help us win the game than that person. Now, that implies that when you have a goal, you can kind of work back from the goal and evaluate things. Now, when it comes to something more profound like human nature mm-hmm. what is the goal now we can evaluate our passions our way of life uh, we can evaluate how we relate to people we can we can all these things come into play we have a basis an objective basis not merely a subjective basis or an arbitrary basis of i like you more than you who knows why 
it, it actually gets comes down to what are the things that that promote here's the term that people use a lot and i think it's overused flourish (laughs) (laughs) human flourishing (laughs) yeah but in the you know in the classic sense of the word i think that's a completely biblical idea um yeah i mean i mean in the westminster catechism it's right there you know i mean you know what's the chief end to to enjoy that's it so here we have the westminster divines thinking teleologically what is the chief end of man and then you work back from that okay to the image of God and the fall. Okay. So we were made to be an image of God and we've fallen from that. So and then, now, and then you have beatitudes. I mean, unpack beatitudes. I mean, I mean, think about it, the blessed life, right? right um, the right. first, first chapters of the Psalms, you know, right, happy right. is the man who, right. 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 It, it's, it's ingredient within the whole milieu of the biblical, you know, worldview i mean from old testament to new so this gets us to you know sort of an uh, an, an aristotelian way of thinking potentiality and actuality (laughs) so we are potentially the image of god because we were made to be the image of god we are not the image of god because of sin in other words something has been Uh, i'm I'm gonna object we're still the image of god okay well (laughs) but the image of god in the sense that when you look at now, when you look at Christ, do you see God? Mm-hmm. Yes. When you look at me, do you see God? In other words, there is a space. There's a there's a gap mm-hmm. between Christ and me, mm-hmm. and, and that's what I'm getting at. I, I know what you're getting at. I know it. I know. I'm not saying that that we have. Yeah, it's become, not the eradication of right. our creaturely natures that are. I mean, I, I mean, that's where I think like hard, hard reform would kind of think that there's nothing, there's nothing sustained by God and providence about your created nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that, that wouldn't be what you're, you're up to, what you're, you're talking to. It's, there's a, there's a sustained um, um, refraction of our being made in the image of God that is intrinsic even to us, even when we're fallen. That it's yeah. not it's not such that we refract the true glory of God because of sin, but it hasn't eradicated our being made right. creatures to radiate forth God's image. Right. Yeah. And and that that's what I was, you know, the 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 terminology sure. suggested that we are no we no longer bear the image of God. And I that that yeah. leads you to some really bad places really fast. Yeah, yeah. and I and I'm on the same page with you. Yeah. So I think though the but the, but what we're what we're getting at now is a way to get at purposes and essences and real things that are not simply subjective in nature that we can use to evaluate you know our lives the world that we live in ideas these sorts of things and. And it's also mysterious, you know, getting back to this, this matter of mystery that we started with, um, the fact that we are images of God is a mysterion. You know, it's, it's, it's something that's not necessarily entirely clear. Um, you know, it's not sort of like when I first met you, Tom, this is not an insult. This is just simply the, simply the fact that this is what this is the case. When I met Tom, I didn't think, ah, the image of God. Yeah. <laughs> what I, what it I thought was nice, but you know, <laughs> what I thought was a guy named Tom. Yeah, yeah. But but I mean, I think you know, there, there's an interesting thing here because I think in, in the in the biblical world, and again, this tells us how removed we are from. The, the biblical imagery, the Hellenist, you know, the Hellenic culture in which, I mean, they would have understood this very, you know, very closely to, you know, we, we're made to be sons and daughters of God. Um, and and that language of, I mean, they they use strong language, theosis, de, you know, right, um, right. deification. But that talks about the fact that you are made to be Christ-like. Mm-hmm. Uh, the image and likeness, you know, and of course they made a little bit of a exegetical, you know, distinction between image and likeness that, you know, a lot of modern historicists say wasn't a legitimate um, kind of historical hermeneutic, you know, that they just thought it was reduplicating the same word, image and likeness. 
The early church didn't think that way. They thought that, no, this was a distinction. You're made in the image, but you're called to be in the likeness. There's a, there, there is a growth going on here. That, that The telos, the end game towards which you become is to be God-like, Christ-like. That's what you were created for. And so in, unless you are, you, you are um, on that path in Christ, you are less than human, if you will. You're mm-hmm. you're you're closer to the beast than to the 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 uh, the God who made you. I mean, that was their way of thinking about this. Right. Yeah, I, I think I'd like to sort of bring this into a landing here a little bit. Uh, we're getting close to the point where we should mm-hmm. wrap things up. Um, getting back to this matter of knowledge and mystery. So, knowledge is sort of enlightenment thinkers have helped us to see or caused us to think. Uh, is a way of clearing up mysteries, yeah. kind of removing mystery from sort of the stage. Whereas earlier uh, thinking was something that helped you to perceive a mystery. Yeah. So yeah. to see the, the sort of the reality beneath the surface that's significant and eternal and gives life meaning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with regard to social analysis or the critique of ideas, I think that and I, a set of, 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 of teachings, a set of ideas, a zeitgeist, um, really does need to be demystified. Yeah, yeah. Because it, uh, it uh, occludes the mystery at the heart of things. So this is sort of like wheels within wheels here. <laughs> so what we need is we need people like Carl yeah. to, to sort of help to pull back the veil yeah. and help us to see that Rousseau and uh, other thinkers, you know, the, the romantic poets, Shelley yeah. and so forth, they were obscuring something real yeah. that, that we should be able to, to apprehend they, they, they were almost like eclipsing true mystery. Right. And, right. and the significance of it for all the areas that they were addressing. Right. That's what, that's what I'm getting at. So yeah. there, is, there is a place for this kind of demystification. That's Carl right. has performed a great service by demystifying. You, you could say what, yeah, like Carl's doing, you know, pull back to uh, Calvin's language, is, is he's kind of doing idolatry critique. That's he's it. Actually, he's, he's pulling the fact that we're, we're idol makers, you know, it, we're kind of got this, this mind that, that wants to do it. Well, figures like Rousseau and the like were, were people ungoverned by Christ and, and the gospel. And so, therefore, they were governed by something else, and that something else is what he's trying to unpack. Right. At the same time, we don't want to be, you know, people who just simply demystify things. That's right. You know, uh, when the Lord talked about, you know, the man who had been delivered from a demon. And then, you know, he goes out and finds seven more or six more. more, And it comes back and the man's state is worse than it was at the first. I think that's kind of the place we find ourselves in today. Yeah. You know, uh, because we, uh, we demist, when we demystify things, but don't see the, the the abiding mystery, the living true sort of core of things. Uh, then that void gets filled with all sorts of bad stuff. Well, and and I think I mean you hit. Uh, I, I think the the spiritual, the true spirituality, yeah, is is kind of the the missing ingredient in most of the ways most people are trying to engage culture in, in the church. And I think this was what con- connects us to classic Christianity from from the whole board. It allows us to actually have conversations where we didn't have them in Christendom. But it also uh, ha- has um, it actually gives us a set of riches to engage the culture with stuff they don't have access to. This is sure. completely given to us in Christ and the gospel and the church and the Christian intellectual tradition. Yep, I think that's right. Anyways, we should wrap up. Anything you want to say, Glenn? As we do. Two comments. First of all, one of the problems we get moving off topic a little bit (laughs) is the embrace of critical race theory and things like that in many churches is caused by the fact that they just have simply forgotten the fact that we have the resources in the historic Christian tradition to deal with these kinds of issues. Yeah. The second is an observation that Jean-Jacques Rousseau was a Genevan. (laughs) 
That's right. (laughs) Clear it up, Glenn. (laughs) He came from the city of Calvin. Right. And I'm not blaming Calvin for Rousseau. Right. But it's a mark of the way that, especially with our audience, which is primarily reformed, I think. (laughs) It's a mark of the degree to which you can start off right and then end up having people going completely off the rails. Excellent uh, point. Yeah, I think about the fact that, you know, Amsterdam mm-hmm. or Boston, two places that were self-consciously reformed, yeah. are some of the most uh, decadent places in the world today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, you know I, I guess you have to be high in order to fall low. But what's happened, of course, is they fall low. By that, way, means, that means something else, both in Amsterdam and, <laughs> and Austin. <laughs> but Carl, Carl brings out that point. You know, he's got a chapter entitled The Other Genevan, where he talks yeah. about Rousseau. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, good, um, good. you know, the, the, the counter to that is you have to be high in order to fall low is Christ in Philippians 2. That's right. That's right. Yeah, there's a good way to, and a bad way to do that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, on that thought, which is a good thought to end on, we should wrap it up. Anyway, we, we really do appreciate your interest in the Theology Podcast. We get, as was noted earlier, lots of mail and people that even give us money. And we're grateful <laughs> for both the mail and the funds. The funds go to help pay for the show. You know, the three of us don't receive anything, but there are still costs uh, to produce the show, and those help to defray the costs. One of the things, though, that we are working on is uh, a tour. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about it of the Pacific Northwest, and we've not gotten any further since the last time we talked to you. <laughs> but, but we are thinking about it. Get on the we, stick, Chris. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. I don't do anything with my time. <laughs> but we, we've been talking about it, and we we do hope to be able to help. Uh, you know, tell you about what our plans are in the near future so that if you're interested in being, you know, sort of attending one of those uh, events that's, that we hope to have here in the Pacific Northwest, you can do so and make plans. Anyway, that's enough for, for now. So thanks a lot and bye-bye. Bye now. Bye now.